0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. So you may have noticed a couple things are a little bit different in the sanctuary this morning. Today we're going to be worshiping uh, God through the festival of Sukkot. Everybody say Sukkot. Kids, it's not pronounced suck it. Okay. There was a couple, there was a couple of people that were um, uh, talking about this festival and they were trying to figure out how to pronounce it and it wasn't that. So Sukkot. Everybody say Sukkot. Sukkot, this is the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles, and today we're going to be looking um, at how Jesus reveals himself through this festival, how he is the substance of the shadow of this festival, Um, and to some degree it's really easy to see because in John 7 and 8 he actually celebrates this festival, so even though um, there was some cultural stuff and the festival was ordained by God, he interacted with this festival and he spoke truth uh, about who he was at this festival. And this is one of the three major pilgrimage festivals, the first one being Passover, which we as Christians celebrate around Easter, thinking of the liberation of God's people and then ultimately the liberation from sin and death that Jesus provides for us through the blood of the cross. Uh, The second festival is Shavuot, which is also known as Pentecost, which is the birth of the church, also the giving of the law to the uh, Old Testament people of God, um, forming them as a people. Um, And then there is Sukkot, which is the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles. Um, And these festivals were very important to the Jewish mindset, to the Hebrew mindset in the Old Testament, so much so that they would save money all throughout the year to be able to send um, a representative, usually the eldest male, to Jerusalem to celebrate these things. So they had these things in their minds at all times, God in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy Um, he he commands them that throughout all your generations to keep gathering, keep remembering these key festivals because they point to what God has done in their life and even what God has done in our life. So today we're going to be, I need you to use your imagination today, okay? We're not in, you know, first century uh, Israel. Um, So I need you to use your imagination today as you're thinking through um, this festival of Sukkot. One of the things that is commanded today that I want to exhort you to do um, is that no, none of the other festivals, God did not command anybody else, um, all the people, to rejoice during Passover or to rejoice during Pentecost. But with Sukkot, God says rejoice three times in the text. And so there's this thing when we gather together that a lot of us feel weighed down by stuff. Uh, maybe we're going through a hard time. Maybe we have no idea what the heck God is doing right now. Maybe we're just trying to figure out things in our lives. Maybe we're questioning God. Maybe we're just in a place where we're torn. And those places are valid places, probably. But today, as we gather as God's people, I want you, out of a heart of faith, to rejoice. That might mean being obedient, like kind of like telling yourself, I'm going to rejoice today. And I would ask you to rejoice not only spiritually and in your heart and in your mind today, but also physically, Like the Psalms are filled with where we get down on our knees in worship. We lift our hands up in worship. We shout out in worship. We also are quiet at times in worship. And especially in a day and age when there's so many voices speaking, where there's so much um, uh, chatter and white noise, that sometimes the the hardest physical act of worship we can do in posturing ourselves to the Lord is just to be still. But the whole gamut, Okay, So today, I, I ask you to rejoice, to clap in an act of obedience to the Lord, in an act of faith. A lot of times, um, I don't want to do certain things because I feel like I'm being inauthentic. I want you to put that to the side. Is our love towards each other, is our love towards God supposed to be genuine? Yes. But sometimes we kind of use that as an excuse to put faith to the side. And not rejoice when God says rejoice. To not cry when God says to cry. And so today, Cornerstone, you and I, I'm asking us to rejoice today. Does everybody understand? It might feel awkward. It's going to feel awkward. Everybody clap. Let's get our arms. It's, good. it's awkward. I get it. It's awkward. So at the end of songs, we're clapping and thanking God for who he is. Feel free to use your body uh, orderly, uh, with, way, with uh, flags, uh, no uh, sword fighting with flags, FYI, we don't do that. Um, any, any way physically that you want to worship God today in an orderly fashion, be free today, okay? So today is the day that the Lord has made. Today we will rejoice. Angie, can you come down? We're going to start by reading a uh, responsive scripture together, Psalm 118. There was this group of psalms that during Sukkot that they would recite and that they would sing over and over and one of these would have been Psalm uh, 118. And so, doing a responsive reading is just like singing together in a way. We have somebody that's leading us, we have some we're responding, just as we sing songs together, we're also saying and praying the scriptures together as one body together. So, Angie's going to lead us. Got the layout here, so you're left side. Left side. So, anything that's on this side, can you put the first one on, Gene? Or Dwayne, sorry. Anything that's on that side is Angie. Can you go to the next one quick? Anything on that side is us. Okay? Could everybody stand up, please?
1: Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Open me to the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So
0: Leviticus 23 um, is one of the places, you know it's going to be a good day when you're in the book of Leviticus. (laughs) Woohoo! Um, I'm going to pick out a couple of the verses, and we're going to talk about some of the traditions that first-century Jews would have went through, and what they meant to them, and ultimately how Jesus reveals Himself through those things. So, um, chapter 23 in Leviticus. Um, let's see here. On the f- 15th day of the seventh, mo- seventh month, you, when you have gathered in the produce of your land, so it was a harvest festival, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord. Specifically, here he's talking about the festival of booths, the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. Now here, are verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord for seven days. So what um, Israel would have... Is that they would gather these four fruits that are in the text? These four things that were from the land. Um, and you can there's different words for each of them, but this this would be. I had to order this. Some of this is dead if you want to look at it afterwards, but because it's a little bit old. But this is these are the the four items that are mentioned in the text. So the first one is the uh, the it's called the etrog, which is this thing here. It almost looks like a big kind of malformed lemon, like it got stretched in the wrong ways. Um, this is called an etrog, and what this came to represent uh, was the heart, and the heart being the center of faith, the center of repentance, the center of healing, and the center of redemption. So the etrog. So this, in the text, this would be the uh, the fruity. Uh, let me see here. The first day is uh, the fruit of the splendid trees. Okay, so this is representing the heart. Then we have um, the lulav, which is the spiritual backbone, which is this harder stuff right here, palm leaves, dried palm leaves. Um, this represented, like I just said, the spiritual backbone, that of conviction, that of strength within a person. Then we had the, the two other kind of uh, greens. Um, one over here, which was called the hadas, um, and they, they likened this to vision and to the eyes. And then this on this side, which is this is kind of the dead stuff, but pretend it's alive and fruitful right now, is that this here, um, how do you say this word? This is the aravaha, and this, is, this represents the lips and prayer and victory over enemies, and victory over enemies. So what they would do is that the priests and uh, the, the men and women there, they would gather these things together and they would kind of put them in a bouquet and they would all hold them and then they would shake them. Um, and they would pray, and they would sing songs to God. And there's different ways that they said that they've done this in the, in the Mishnah, and the Jewish tradition. Um, but they would do it in all directions. They would do it front, they would do it back, they would do it left, they would do it right, they would do it up, they would do it down, as they are, as they are singing and as they are praying to represent the fact of God's presence being everywhere, that this is the world that he created. And there's not, uh, you know, even if we go to the, to the depths, he is still there. Even if we go up high on the mountains, he is still there. So it was a reminder of God's presence with us. It was also a reminder and all the symbolism of these things that we are to worship the Lord our God with everything that we have within us. So with our eyes, with our heart, with our convictions, with our strength. And so this would almost be like a a modern day flag. So they would hold this together and they they would bless the Lord and they would shake it. I don't, I don't know exactly how they would shake it, but they would, they would shake it. So I'm going to go ahead and give this to Sarah. You can hold that. And feel free to pass it around the congregation at some point to check it out. Yeah, just pass around, look at it. So that was, one of, that was one of the traditions that the first century Jews did as far as thinking of God's presence and also thinking of all of us being towards all of him. Uh, Verse 41, and they would rejoice. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So technically, if we would have celebrated this according to the calendar, it would have been the Jewish calendar, it would have been at the end of September, beginning of October this year. Second big piece of uh, symbolism, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in the booths, that your generations ma- may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so if you look in that, that thing in the back, that is called a sukkah. Everybody say sukkah. sukkah. So this is, a, this is a booth. This is a temporary tabernacle, okay? And it was important that it was temporary because as Israel wandered through the desert, they were not at home. They needed a place to be. They needed a place to sleep and to eat. But this was not their home. This was a temporary dwelling place. And so it needed to be firm enough to you know, protect you and to kind of, sort of, keep the elements out. But over time, it would be torn down and rebuilt as they went from place to place in Um, uh, through the wilderness of Kadesh and all those other places. And this was to symbolize our dependence on God, even now. Like a lot of times we want to think that uh, we we want to uh, depend on the houses that we have, which are good gifts. We want to depend on the cars that we drive to get us from point A to point B, or the bus, or all this other stuff. And we can look at all those things as a good gift from God, but ultimately our dependence as people is not on those things. Those are gifts that he has given us, but ultimately our dependence is on God alone. And so even if those things were taken away, we could still be cared for. We could still be cared for because the Lord cares for his people. The Lord cares for his people. And it also said in the text there how this would be a a celebration that we would remember throughout all the ages, through all generations. And this is really important because there's this thing where we want to uh, live for the moment in our culture. Now here at Cornerstone, we, we push pretty hard in a good way that you should be present where you're at. That you shouldn't be so enthralled um, with what could happen and you shouldn't be so tied to your past that you can't live in the present. The funny thing is though, is that the people of God, the way, the best way for us to live in the present is by looking To the past, by remembering the past, and also to look to the future to remember God's promises. Because if we don't, we tend to live for the moment in a bad way. And so we want to think here about Israel. When they came, they sent spies to look at the land, the promised land that God was going to give them, right? And so they're there looking, and what do they see? They see armies, and they see uh, giants, right? And they're scared, and they don't want to enter into the promised land, the place that God has called them to be. Because at that moment, they're living for the moment. They're not remembering what God just did 40 days prior and, uh, with all the plagues and how the, he rescued them from the hands of Egypt. That all of this crazy stuff with the parting of the Red Sea, they, they're not remembering that. They're just looking at what's right in front of them and they're not remembering what happened and the, and the strength of God. They're also not remembering the promise that he said that I will bring you into a good land. I will fight this fight for you. They're not looking to the future and holding on to his promises. And so they're not actually being present in that moment when they're looking at the spies. All the 10 spies said, no, we shouldn't go in. Where Caleb and Joshua were like, no, we can, let's let's remember who the Lord is and let's remember his promises that he has made. And so as the people of God, it's important for us both to remember and both to look forward to the future. Um, If you have your bulletin which I never have a bulletin. I never have a bulletin. Can I have somebody's bulletin, please? James K. A. Smith puts it like this. The church is a people resisting a presentism that can only imagine living for the moment. The church is a people with a deeply ingrained orientation to the future, a habit we learn from Israel. We go through the rhythm of desiring the kingdom, a kind of holy impatience by reenacting Israel's longing for the coming of the Messiah. We are a futural people who will not seek to escape the present, but will always sit somewhat uneasy in the present, haunted by the brokenness of the now. The future we hope for hangs over our present and gives us a vision of what to work for in the here and now as we continue to pray, your kingdom come. At the same time, the rhythms of Christian worship in the liturgical year stretch us backwards. They are practices of remembering, another habit we learn from Israel. We remember with gratitude God's acts of redemption in the exodus and on the cross. We are called to be a people of memory. We are also called to be a people of expectation. We are a stretched people, citizens of a kingdom that is both older and newer than anything offered by the contemporary. So Cornerstone, as the church, we are called to be these people that remember God's goodness in the past and also look forward to God's goodness and promises in the future because as we read together over and over again, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. That we see it in the past, we hope and cling to it in the future, and then we can live in the present with those two things. Yeah, that stand and worship. So water and wine. So another uh, tradition that would happen during Sukkot was that the priests would go to a pool, a specific pool, um, Salom, and they would walk through the city, and they would go to this pool, and this pool. Um, in John 9, then, is the pool that Jesus told the blind man to wash in when he made the spit and the uh, the um, mud and put it on his eyes. One of that cool thing, um, and then he tells him to go and wash. So what would happen is that the uh, one of the priests would go and he would go get a container of water from this pool. There's a, there's a pool back here. If you didn't know that, it's a secret. And would come and they would uh, go all throughout the city and would bring it back to the temple. And when they uh, got to the temple, as this time, it was water to an arid nation is really important. Like it's a source of life, right? I mean, it's a source for life on earth, but especially if you live in a dry land. And so um, this was a harvest festival and it's something that we can't necessarily, some of the farmers probably could, But us, just as modern day Americans that have all this stuff, um, you know, right at our fingertips, the importance of rains that were to come. And how much that uh, the people of God ask for the rains to come physically and spiritually. And so what would happen is that um, they would pray, they would um, thank the Lord for the harvest that they had. um, And they would come, and then they would come into the temple gates. And when they came into the temple gates, let me try that again. You had to do it twice back then. You had to do the dropping of the arm twice. And when you did it the second time, that's when the horn would blow. There would, be a tr- there would be people there playing the trumpet. It wouldn't be a brass trumpet like Matt did. It would probably be a shofar, some kind of a trumpet, where it would, be, um, it would be like a declaration of here comes the water from the pool. Matt, you can make your way on the stage then. And what would happen also, though, is that they would meet uh, another priest there. And uh, this priest would have a vessel of wine um, for a drink offering. And a drink offering was really important because, for multiple reasons, um, the strong drink, the wine, um, was that they couldn't, they couldn't have bread and they couldn't have wine in the wilderness. Um, the reason is twofold. One, they weren't at home. Wine is a symbol of rest. Wine is a symbol of uh, wholeness. Wine is a symbol of rejoicing and joy and Sabbath, but when they were in the wilderness, when they were in the sukkahs, um, they weren't home yet. God had a different place that they were provide a different place that He provided for them, and so they were traveling in this wilderness to this place, even being tested and disciplined in it. Please come, please. And the priest would make weird faces like this. <laughs> It'd be a, really a <clears throat> <laughs> I have no idea why that was so difficult. <laughs> um, and so they would meet one of the other priests that would, that would be there with wine. Uh, one of the other reasons that they couldn't just logistically have wine in uh, the wilderness is because wine takes time. It takes process to mature into what it's supposed to be. And if you're moving around from place to place to place, you can't cultivate the land. You can't till the land. You can't help the land flourish and get certain things out of it that it's meant to, to bring. So they would uh, bring these two things together. And then what they would do, this is going to be a mess is that they would each... So these are the containers. Pretend these containers here are the containers I'm about to pour into. Okay? And what they would do is that together they would continue to pour into... But if you'll notice on here, there's a little spout. I don't know if you can see this little spout, but at the bottom of each of them, there's this little spout. And so up top, the mouth is wider than the spout is. So... The inflow is greater than the outflow can happen, and this would drip on the altar. They would come up to the altar, the corner of the altar. They'd have these cups here, and they'd be pouring this. But because the inflow, listen to this symbolically too, because the inflow was more than the outflow, what would happen if they kept pouring My cup runneth over. God is a God that doesn't play into our games of cultural excess, but he is a generous God. And so the things that, like, we can have a poverty spirit by actually having too much of something, right? Because you can have nothing and still be considered a generous person. You can have nothing and still be considered a generous person. And so when God gives, He gives enough, and his enough is usually a lot more than we actually need. But again, he doesn't play into this culture of excess that goes after things all the time because of a lack inside. No, he gives out of his abundant love what we need. What we need is enough, and what he gives that is that enough is usually more than we actually need. But there's this this game in our mind as far as what we need, what we don't need in the world today. So um, Jeremiah 2 talks about how the people of God did two things that were evil in God's eyes. One of them is that they they forsook God. You have forsaken me. And he calls himself the fountain of living water. You have forsaken me as the fountain of living water. And also you've created these things. You've created these systems and these cisterns that can actually hold no water at all. And so when we don't have the fountain of life within us and then whatever kind of water we're trying to get, we have this system that just bleeds out all over the place, is that we are a thirsty people, that God's people can often be a thirsty people when we forsake the fountain of life, when we build these things, when we take substitutes and put them in for the living water, the running water, rather than we take salt water. Like if you drink salt water, is it water? Yes. Is it wet? Yes. Does it hydrate you? No. And a lot of times we take these other things that are liquid-like and water-like, but they're kind of mixed with something else, and we take them in, and they actually end up spiritually dehydrating us more. Past two months, I've been um, helping my family take care of twins. Most of you know that. Energy drinks have been a big part of my diet. Not afraid to admit that. Energy drinks are fine for a time. If we as a people and as a culture need to live off of energy drinks, there's something wrong in the rhythm of our lives. There's something wrong in us resting and receiving God's overflow and receiving God's abundant love in, in, in our lives. Now, the great news about this is that all this was happening, um, and then on the last day of the feast, John 7, John 7, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried. So it wasn't like he was telling uh, his disciples this quietly. He stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the picture everybody would have had in their mind would have been this that this drink offering, that this water libation that happened every day, that would have been the picture in their mind as Jesus, in the context of his day, stood up and cried this out. Like, this is fine. This is a good ceremony. This is good symbolism. I am the real living presence of this. I am the reality. This is a shadow of what you need. Jesus is saying, I am the reality of what you need. And what does he say in the text that that that, that, uh, living water actually is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that we need, that we desire, that every day we need to drink of him. And the great thing is, is that Jesus has come, that we may see him, believe in him, and that he graciously and abundantly out of his love gives us this water. Let's stand and worship. That was good. Stepping out of the boat, stepping into the promised land. I didn't put that together before. Like stepping out of the boat, act of faith, stepping into the promised land. That's cool. Um, I'm going to call on four young men to get their light bulbs. What? So hopefully this won't turn out horrible. Um, So one of the other traditions, Gene, Dwayne, if you can put that other. Another tradition they had was with fire and light because uh, what led Israel through the night? Pillar of fire. Pillar of fire. And so what they would do in remembrance and symbolic representation of this, they would have four young men of the, the priestly stock that they would have these big, huge pillars that were 75 feet tall. This room is maybe 30 feet tall. So think double the height of this room. And they were on ladders, 75 feet. And what they did is that they carried oil, On their backs, Um, you can see that they're in these big jars, big jugs. Uh, Seven to eight gallons of oil, so it was about 50 pounds on their backs. They're going up these 75-foot ladders, and they poured it up there, got it ready. And then what what happened is that they would take the uh, old undergarments, the soiled goods of the the Levites, and they would tear them up, and they would use that as kind of the wick and the fire starter. And so they would take uh, the priestly garments, and they would... They would come, and then they would turn on everything, and there would be this blazing light. Gene, can you take all the other lights down? And there would be this blazing light. Now, obviously, um, they didn't have electricity back then, so like these things were huge, and these things were massive, and these things lit up all of Jerusalem. Like there wasn't a place, that says, that uh, you couldn't you couldn't tell where Jerusalem was, where the festival was going on. And, and people were celebrating like crazy. They had, they had like these fire dances and stuff like this. It was kind of like an ancient rave, uh, you know, minus the drugs. But it was like a time of uh, celebrating and rejoicing. And um, I could just see Dennis at a rave. Yeah, Dennis. You know, rejoicing before the Lord at the harvest. He's thankful and everything and doing, and just enjoying the fact that God was their God. And remembering... That even in the wilderness, God was still with them like Joy just prayed. So God could have just been like, you know what? You didn't want to go into the promised land. And then you wanted to go when I didn't want you to go. I'm done with you. I'm done with your whole, uh, all the generations. He could have said that. He could have left them the 40 years in the wilderness. But he didn't. He stayed with the people that were idolatrous he stayed with the people because he was a God that was a generational God. They both loved the generation that so deeply hurt him and broke the covenant, but was also looking forward to the future because he was going to bring his people into the promised land one way or another. And he could have left, but he didn't. He led them by the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. At the pillar of fire at night. And so again, probably during this festival or maybe uh, Hanukkah when a similar thing was uh, happening, uh, Jesus, this picture, these flaming, so think a million times brighter, a hundred times, not a 100 two times higher. These big, I don't even know what they did at the bottom, because it's not like fire is like nicely contained all the time. Like I'm sure there was like fire spilling out from the sides at some time, and I was just like, are people getting burned or what's going on? But during this time, as all of this is going on, this picture of this big tower this menorah, with these four big, huge, uh, 50-gallon uh, buckets of, of oil that are set ablaze. Um, everybody's looking at this. And then Jesus says this. And he says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This was awesome. I mean, again, imagine... This huge thing, big, awesome, crazy time going on of celebration. That was just a shadow. It was just a shadow of the reality of Jesus and what he does for us. Looking back as far as how God guided uh, Israel, God's people in the wilderness through the pillar of fire, and then how now he says, I am, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And so we have this image burned into our brains. They would have had this image burned into their brains as he would have said this. And a, lo- a lot of times in First John, we talked about the humanity of Jesus. But in these two things specifically, Jesus is really asserting his divinity. You know, like because who was the fountain of life according to Isaiah 44? It was God. Who was the pillar of fire that led um, Israel through the wilderness at night? It was God. And while we completely grab onto the humanity of Jesus and the fullness thereof, we also remember his divinity, his messiahness, and how, in his uh, humanity, by his blood, by his death, he is able to cleanse us. And then, by his messiahship, he is able to lead us and form us and transform us into something into true humanity. Even that's the that's the that's the horrible part about humanism is that God actually wants humans to be human to their fullest degree because humans being humans to, their, humans to their, the fullest degree under God is bearing their, his image, is bearing his image. But then you get this other thing that wants to be just about the human aspect of life. Completely disregard God, we'll do this ourselves. But Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Everyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we remember both that God is love, absolutely, but God is also light. He is righteous. He is a consuming fire that comes after us, that purifies us, that loves us, that gets rid of all that junk that is attached to us, that will wait 40 years to bring his people into a good land, that he's not on any kind of time scale of ours, that he doesn't play the games of excess, but he has a generous and abundant heart of love towards his people. Even when that heart towards us is out of discipline and out of correction and out of, no, that's not good for you. Even then, God is love and God is light. Let's stand and worship. So Sukkot, festival of booths, festival of tabernacles, temporary dwelling, looking forward to home, looking forward to the promised land, looking forward to rest and Sabbath Thomas said to them, look, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the road. I am the source. I am the vitality. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the, the Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so the final thought, I just want you to... Go away with today is to know that God has a place for his people. That a lot of stuff that we're going through now in our lives, possibly, um, it's just temporary. That just as uh, God prepared uh, the promised land for his people back then, so Jesus is preparing a place for us to draw us to himself, to be with him where he is. And he's a God, he's the Messiah. He's the person that wants to do that. He wanted to tabernacle among us, these temporary tabernacles. And then he comes and the word tabernacles among us, that God is with us, He wants to be with us. And then he's saying that we're going to be together again in the fullness and totality. And that eternal life, sure, absolutely starts now. But then we also, just as we look to the past of of Israel and to that festival, we also look to the future into the new heaven, into the new earth and we build into that and that future informs us now just as the past informs us now that we don't have to live for the moment and yet be present in the moment and know that the Holy Spirit in whatever way is dwelling with us who believe in Jesus Christ and that if you're in a place right now of junk or of darkness or of thirst that Jesus is here to say, come to me, drink of me, I am the light of the world, and I'm preparing a place for you and for us, for God's people, for all of creation, renewed, really. And so this temporary thing is just temporary. It's just a shadow of the fullness of Christ and what he provides for us now and even more so in the future. So let's stand and sing one more song together. for the benediction today I leave you with the image of revelation 21 and 22 And I saw no temple no tabernacle in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light, or lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, Cornerstone, may you go out today knowing that Jesus is the light of the world. And that how he has called you to be a light in this world? Would you go out knowing that he wants to give you his Holy Spirit as you believe and follow him daily? And then when things get confusing and when things don't seem to make sense and everything else, that God is still God. That Jesus is still Jesus and his love endures forever. Have a good Sunday. Be blessed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.